The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're meeting the Poison Squad. We're spending the hour with Deborah Blum, talking about the history of food regulation, or the lack thereof, and her new book, The Poison Squad, One Chemist's Single-Minded Crusade for Food Safety at the Turn of the 20th Century. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. Many of us worry a lot about what's in our food these days. Maybe you worry it's too processed and has chemicals that sound like the ones found in yoga mats. Maybe you worry your food has too much sugar in it. Or is it too much fat now? Is too much protein a thing? Maybe next year. But there are some things you don't worry about. You don't worry, for instance, that your milk has been preserved with formaldehyde. You don't worry about whether your meat is loaded with borax. And you don't worry whether there is any actual cocaine in your Coca-Cola. For a lot of that, you can thank one man, Harvey Washington Wiley. This driven, passionate chemist was a household name in the early 20th century, a titan of the pure food movement. But these days, you may never have even heard of him. Deborah Blum is out to change that. She's the director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT, as well as the author of The Poisoner's Handbook, one of my favorite science reads. Now she's got a new book, The Poison Squad, One Chemist's Single-Minded Crusade for Food Safety at the Turn of the 20th Century. Deborah, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me on, Bethany. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to first get a little bit of background about the turn of the 20th century. It was kind of a rough time for food safety, really. Why was food safety of such a concern in the early 1900s? Well, if you go back, if you roll back just a little bit to the late 19th century, uh, what you find is a kind of wild west of food because it's not regulated in any way. This was one of the fascinating things for me that I hadn't really fully considered when I started looking at, you know, what was the backstory of our first food safety regulations. So in the 19th, there's none at a federal level. And that makes this very permissive landscape where food manufacturers can do anything they want to food. They don't have to label it. They don't have to safety test what's in it. They can consider the American consumer basically a guinea pig if they want to. And this is all legal. And so in that situation, you have a couple of things going on. You have the rise of industrial chemistry. You have a big move uh, in United States society away from the rural parts of the state and into cities where people are buying this manufactured food. And so the late 19th especially is an explosion of food craziness and insanely faked and weirdly manufactured foods. And, and it's really a fascinating period. But that is what finally led to a push for, hey, maybe we actually have to protect these consumers. What I found especially interesting was that Europe at this time did regulate food safety, but the United States didn't. Why was the United States kind of behind on federal regulation? Well, I mean, I think that you could say that's still true today. Europe is a lot more proactive in in the way it regulates chemicals that go into foods, cosmetics, and other products. And and someone recently quoted me a list saying that of the European list of over a thousand regulated chemical compounds, the United States only bans 10, right? It's a, it's a different approach. And some of that, I think, has to do 
with our American resistance to government telling us what to do. We're, we're always, you know, fighting this fight between uh, the good of society and the rights of the consumer. And, and sometimes one wins and sometimes the other. And this was especially acute in the 19th century. In Europe, as with the United States, though, the Europeans started regulating for food safety probably about the mid-19th and that followed a, a whole series of scandals. The first law in, in England came after they had almost two dozen children who died of arsenic poisoning of candy, right? So you saw these really serious problems and public health effects and deaths of children related to the way we colored food or manufactured food in the UK, and they started slapping laws into place. Even with that example, we did not follow without you know a true dogfight over this issue i just love it like in the united states we're sitting here going we will have formaldehyde in our milk if we want to that's exactly <laughs> right and some of the other really crazy preservatives like salicylic acid you know which we know from aspirin is a fever producer but also causes bleeding in the gastro gastrointestinal tract so in the united states we're all for that in beer and wine but in germany for instance that's completely banned everyone sees it as a health risk and so you actually see this weird situation where the Germans ban the use of salicylic acid in their own beer, but when they're shipping beer to the United States, they load the beer up with that exact thing. Now, you mentioned that you have, you know, people, children were dying <laughs> due yes. to people putting arsenic in their candy. This was a minefield of just really wild stuff into food, and into this minefield stepped Harvey Washington Wiley. Who is this guy? So Wiley, when he really takes center stage in the food fights of the 19th and early 20th century, is the chief chemist at a tiny laboratory, the Bureau of Chemistry, at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And as we were discussing, of course, there's no consumer protection legislation in the U.S. There's no FDA. There's no agency that's looking at food safety. And all of that falls to the USDA, which has long been known as a pro-agri business agency. But Wiley comes into this bureau and and says, you know, we are testing American food, right, for farmers, but we're also going to test it for consumers. And so in 1883, when he takes this job, he had left a position as a professor of chemistry at Purdue. He launches a series of investigations of American food. And that really launches both my story and the push for regulation, because until he does this, these incredible you know, chemical investigations of everything from dairy to spice to coffee to wine to meats to vegetables. I mean, there, the, he, there's nothing he doesn't try to explore. People just didn't know how bad it was. And these series of reports are the sort of foundation of this head-spinning moment in which consumer activists and scientists start going, wait a minute, right? Just wait a minute. This is not okay. I was especially amazed that Wiley, during his tenure, and even after he left the Department of Agriculture, he was a, an actual household name. The chief chemist of the agricultural department was a household name. I would challenge anyone today to name the head of the FDA right now. 
<laughs> so, well, maybe, you know, I can do that one. <laughs> I can too. It's Scott Gottlieb. <laughs> That's right. But maybe the head, not maybe the head of the FDA or maybe even the head of the USDA, Sonny Perdue, but name the chief chemist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture now or name the head of, you know, chemical testing at the FDA now. I can't do that, right? We don't. We're a bigger country, but also there was this unique series of events that made Wiley, uh, you know, a science celebrity in the true sense. People really knew who he was. And when you look at, I spent weeks at the uh, National uh, the archives of the Library of Congress, reading the Wiley papers. And then he's getting letters and telegrams from, you know, people in tiny towns across the United States and small businessmen and ministers and you know, factory workers. People really did know who he was. And that's, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of it. A really astonishing thing. Why was he so well known? Well, this is a blessing and a curse for him, but because he did finally, when he did all these studies of, you know, the terrible things in food, become convinced that he this had to change. And I think he became convinced that it wouldn't change unless he took an activist role. He becomes more and more public in the way that he raises the alarm about the American food supply. You know, from things like formaldehyde and milk, which you mentioned, or charred bone and ground coffee, or I, I mean, I have a long list, cinnamon, you know, brick dust and cinnamon, uh, ground gypsum and flour. I mean, there's just a host of these. He starts making these public in a very deliberate way, and he does it in popular magazines, and he gives talks to anyone who will listen. And of course, eventually, he does this really crazy series of experiments that my book is named after. And so he becomes the focal point, a focal point for the fight for safe food. And that made him extremely well-known and extremely popular with your average, you know, American who felt that he was standing up for them and extremely unpopular with many people of power, both in government and in business. So you see him at, as a kind of lightning rod for the movement. And I think that too made him a household name. And one of the things, the main impression that you get reading this book about Wiley, I would say the main word that I would use to describe him is tenacious. He was absolutely tenacious when it came to what was called at the time pure food. Why was he so obsessed with this? What was kind of driving him? That's a great question. And I think in part the answer to that, you know, lies in the kind of person he was. Sometimes I think of him as a, and I know it sounds contradictory, as a kind of holy roller chemist. But he was raised to believe that his you know, one of his missions in life should be making the world a better place. He was the son of a farmer, but also a, an evangelical preacher in Indiana. He w talked often about the role of chemistry and science in, in making the world a better place. He, he really had this kind of missionary zeal. 
And once he got onto this one issue, you're absolutely right. He was tenacious. He was inflexible, right? People would try to get him to compromise on what he, on some of his ideals about consumer protection and, and food safety. He wouldn't. He wouldn't compromise and he wouldn't let go. And as you mentioned earlier, even after he left federal service, he went over to Good Housekeeping and founded the Good Housekeeping Laboratories and the Good Housekeeping Seal of Approval and continued his campaign. Really, until the day he died, he was still fighting for this issue. It was a defining issue for him. And I guess the last part of this, this is kind of a long answer, is that he was never satisfied, right? He had this goalpost as to what consumer protection and pure food or safe food would be, and he never felt that he reached it. And he wasn't the kind of person who would quit trying to reach the goalpost. And he wasn't alone. There was this movement. It was called the Pure Food Movement. This movement kind of arose in the 1880s, 1890s, turn of the century, how big was this movement and, and who was kind of involved in it? You know, it's, you're absolutely right. And I can talk about Wiley as if, you know, Wiley alone carried the banner. But in fact, we would not have food protection legislation if it had been one, you know, kind of cranky chemist at the uh, USDA. So the uh, eventually you get this pure food movement and it's thousands of people, people in every state. There's a, a pure food conventions that are held around the United States that brings in leaders from every state. There are uh, states that are hugely dissatisfied with what the federal government is doing, which is nothing. And they have their own food chemists and their uh, uh, food safety legislation in some cases, right? Uh, particularly in states, interestingly, that we now think of as red states, we're super progressive on this issue. And so you see people, the chief food chemist in North Dakota, for instance, or South Dakota or Texas or Nebraska are real pioneers pushing for food safety. And then there's other groups, some of which Wiley deliberately recruited. He really recognized that he need women's, needed women's organizations on his side. I mean, women were at this point the cooks, right? You know, back to the kitchen. They were in the kitchen. And so so they got how bad this was, and they really minded that they were, without their knowledge, feeding their families unsafe food. And so he was able to recruit a broad swath of, of it really powerful, organized women's groups to fight on his side. And finally, he had some businessmen. You know, it's one of the unexpected parts of the story. But if I you pick someone like Henry J. Hines of the Hines Condiment Empire, uh, Hines was a huge leader in the fight for pure food, infuriating his fellow uh, businessmen. But he really stood up. So you get this fascinating mixture of state people from different states and women and and a few industrialists and magazine publishers and and muckraking journalists finally uh, and I want to br- mention that because I think it's really important none of this would have come about if the early 20th century hadn't also been a period in which we see the rise of investigative journalism the Teddy Roosevelt called the muckrakers because he didn't like the muck they dug up. 
but uh, they make very public these problems, both in food and drugs. And again, we would not have had consumer protection without them. And so now let's get to kind of the impetus behind this pure food movement and, you know, what these muckraking journalists were digging up, the awesome and horrible food scandals, (laughs) which is what make up a lot of your book. And they're kind of enjoyable to read in a kind of hindsight 2020 kind of way. There was a scandal called the embalmed beef scandal. Can you talk about embalmed beef? (laughs) Isn't that amazing? And I actually, it's one of those things where you go, well, you know, I thought I knew something about American history, but I missed the embalmed beef scandal entirely. So the embalmed beef scandal actually was a a scandal involving the U.S. Army after the Spanish-American War. And what happened was, this was a very brief war in um, in 18, uh, in the late 1890s. And uh, shortly after the war, concluded one of the generals in the U.S. Army said, well, I want to complain because it's become obvious to me that more soldiers were injured by the food served by the U.S. Army than by the Spanish soldiers in Cuba. And he was particularly talking about the meat supplies that were sent by the Army to soldiers fighting in Cuba. And uh, this was called the embalmed beef scandal because um, the food manufacturers of the time were fond of using formaldehyde, which was an embalming compound made famous in the Civil War, in fact, uh, to preserve both meat and milk. And so there was this sense that people would open the cans of meat that were shipped out by the army. They would be inhaling a waft of formaldehyde. They had people literally testify, even undertakers who were serving in the army, that it smelled exactly like embalmed corpses. And then from these preservatives, not only uh, formaldehyde, but borax and some of the other additives, uh, poisoning American soldiers. And this turned into a huge scandal. There were two hearings under McKinley looking at the sorry state of meat served to American soldiers. Teddy Roosevelt, who famously fought as a rough rider in that war, testified. He was then governor of New York, and he marched into the hearing and declared that he would rather have eaten his hat than eaten this horrible meat. And he actually talked about forcing one of the men serving under him to eat some meat and that young soldier starting to throw up. And just to get kind of gruesome for a minute, Roosevelt then goes over and he picks up the can of meat. Then it has this kind of greenish scum on the top and there's fibers sticking out of the can. And I mean, it was gross reading about it. What the hearing found was that, and to the relief, I think, of the military, is that the military could not be held responsible because this was just the average meat that was sold in American grocery stores everywhere. This was standard meat processing in the late 19th century, mostly coming out of the stockyards of Chicago. And you see after the embalmed meat scandals, embalmed milk scandals, because dairymen are using formaldehyde to preserve rotting milk, and they are 
are outbreaks across the country of children dying because the over-enthusiastic dairymen have put too much formaldehyde in the milk and they actually kill small children doing so. Again, it's legal, right? None of these guys were charged by the federal government because they're not breaking any laws. I should put a warning on this podcast to like not eat before listening to this <laughs> because you, you really had me at the green with the fibers. <laughs> I know. It's the most disgusting image. And and just to be even more gruesome for a minute, but when you get into some of the fakery involved with milk, of course, one of the stories that seems to catch everyone's attention was that to that you know, dairymen would skim the milk and then they'd recolor it with plaster or chalk or whatever and then to recreate the look of cream they would puree calf brains and, and float them on top of the bottle of milk and uh, there was a complaint from uh, Indiana actually that this looked very realistic but then when you poured it into your hot coffee speaking of coffee the milk brain little calf brains would cook a little bit and you never mind it's really oh. a horrifying <laughs> Image. I had someone actually ask me if I still drank milk, and I said, well, I'm not going to drink 19th century milk. Uh, I'm not going to reenact a bottle of 19th century milk in my known lifetime, I can tell you that. I can safely say this is this is a t- an era that I never want to reenact the food. Now, companies were also putting, you mentioned, borax in different foods, as in borax is a detergent, it's used in, in cleaning. Why were people putting borax in food? <laughs> yeah, isn't that crazy? And the company that actually was behind the big borax preservative movement was, uh, we still see their products today, 20 Mule Team Borax. It was, uh, they, this was a company that had found big deposits, uh, uh, that would allow them to make borax out in California. So it turned out once they started looking at this cleaning product, that it was a pretty good, uh, antimicrobial agent, right? It actually preserved, uh, so that you could put it in foods that were prone to rot and it preserved them. And interesting, both with I haven't eaten it right but it had a slightly Swedish taste which is also true of formaldehyde so they would put it in all kinds of things because the consumer uh, couldn't detect it and I mean this is a really important thing to know about many preservatives and food additives they don't have any taste so there's not going to be any warning formaldehyde actually I am told slightly improved the taste of sour milk because it's Swedish. Borax actually added a slight tang of sweetness to butter. So people would put it into these things knowing that it was never, the consumer was never going to go, what is this horrible thing? Right? Because they couldn't taste it. And so you see, you see borax and formaldehyde in a huge variety of foods um, in the late 19th and early 20th, in meat, in milk, in butter, in cheeses, in all kinds of different things in which, especially in an era before standard refrigeration, foods would spoil. And so there was also that imperative to using chemical preservatives, right? And the question was, and this was one that Wiley raised repeatedly, no one was required to label their products. So no American actually knew how many doses of formaldehyde or borax or salicylic acid or any of these other additives they were getting on a daily basis. And the concern was twofold. 
One was you're getting so many doses of this every day that you're going past, you know, a tiny exposure into a potentially toxic exposure as these add up. And secondly, you know, you're feeding these to very small children, to the elderly, to the people who were sick, so that finally you see cookbook writers saying, if you're cooking for the sick, please be careful about what foods you're actually giving them because they can indeed contain materials that are dangerous to someone who's already in poor health. You mentioned that one of Wiley's biggest kind of pet peeves was that no one was putting labels on their food. And now, you know, we think, of course, every packaged food has a nutrition label that tells you exactly what's in it. Um, But at the time, there was a lot of pushback against this. Why didn't people want to label the food? They didn't think people would buy it if they knew what was in it. Um, and so, for instance, just to give you an example of one of the popular fakes of the time, strawberry jam was hugely faked. And you could actually make – I'm putting air quotes about it if you could see me uh, – strawberry jam but out of corn syrup with a little gelatin, which was usually made at that time from horse hoof, um, a little gelatin into your corn syrup. Then you dye it with red-ish or pink-ish with uh, aniline coal tar dye, some of which were really poisonous at that time, or red lead, which was another popular food dye of the time. And then to simulate the uh, presence of strawberry seeds, they would use grass seed. And then occasionally they would take – this is the cheap strawberry jam, right? We're really talking about a two-tiered food supply in in which wealthy people maybe actually got strawberry jam and working class people most likely didn't. And so this was a popular, affordable strawberry jam. And what the manufacturers thought, and, and they were undoubtedly right, is if you labeled, people wouldn't buy it. Right. Why would you buy that? It was clearly fake. Why would you buy honey if you had to label it? As people did, corn syrup with fake honeycomb crumbled in it. Why would you buy buy coffee? And they would do something called a compound coffee. This was one of the tricks that if you called something a compound, you didn't have to say whether it actually had coffee in it. You could make a compound coffee that had contained no coffee at all. And so why would you buy that if you knew it had no coffee in it? So people did not want the labels because they knew that it would tank their products. Labels today are not as transparent as we think either. And so, and I'm happy to talk about that as well. There's, they're lengthy, but there's all kinds of ways in which business and government have done some hand holding so that you actually don't get all the information you think you're getting. Well, way to freak me out. Now, (laughs) when we were talking about Wiley, he became best known for not just stating that chemicals were making it into food. He also said, oh, well, this is much more dangerous levels. You know, this is not like tiny little harmless amounts. And to find that out, he fed them to people. And this is where we get to the title of your book, Who Was the Poison Squad? Yes. 
I mean, it's really in the history of sinus science, one of the most crazy experiments ever done. So the Poison Squad was a nickname given by the Washington Post to uh, a series of tests that Wiley ran, which he called hygienic table trials, on uh, human volunteers. And this is the part, you could never get this approved today. He skipped animal safety testing entirely and went right to people. And and this was because he had started to feel just really desperate about this, that all these things are going into food and they're still not regulated. This is in the early 20th century and and so we have to find out if they can do harm and so he set up an experiment he got congressional funding for it in which he recruited young volunteers to essentially dine dangerously and the deal was the department of agriculture created a dining room and a special kitchen and if you were in the, these poison squad studies you would get three free meals a day seven days a week which was a huge deal if you were a poorly paid government clerk and the only catch is that at any given moment while you're eating during this these experiments ran for a couple of years half of you will be adding capsules to your meal every day that contain the particular additive that Wiley was studying at the time. And he would vary the doses on those, right? So they would start very small and they would notch them up. But for several weeks to several months, the half the poison squad would be dining on food that was mixed with additives, and half the poison squad would be getting beautiful farm-fresh food cooked by a professional chef. And, and they were tested, right? Blood tests and urine tests and all kinds of physical examinations to kind of track them during these periods. And then they'd have periods where everyone just ate well to kind of clear their systems. Wiley said when he started this, and he started with borax, which was hugely popular, that he hadn't actually expected it to be that bad. He started with what he thought was probably the least dangerous of these additives to kind of ease this forward. And he was really shocked when people started getting very sick fairly quickly from these doses of borax. And these were young, healthy men. They weren't, you know, children or ailing elderly people. And so that first study, which was borax, got an enormous amount of attention, triggered congressional hearings, and I think surprised everyone. It surprised everyone, horrified people who were buying these foods and horrified the manufacturers who had hoped that this information would never be available. So it was hugely influential as we move toward actual regulation because it becomes an, an, indeed a national scandal about food. And how long did this poison squad run? Like you mentioned they tested borax. What else did they end up testing? They tested uh, formaldehyde and they tested copper sulfate, which was an additive in which they, which they used to green canned vegetables, which 
were kind of grayish looking. <laughs> they just greened them back up so they looked all farm fresh. With copper, which of course is a toxic metal, they tested salicylic acid. They tested um, sulfites. They tested uh, sulfuric acid and some of the uh, processes that were used to preserve, say, dried fruit. They tested sodium benzoate. Um, and sodium benzoate is a preservative that is still in our food supply and was kind of a breaking point because it had so much support from manufacturers and industry and political support that Wiley's boss did his very best to even censor the sodium benzoate report, right? So you see as these go on, they start in 1902. They really ran through 1904 with different compounds being tested and different reports being released. This increasing anger as these results roll forward. It actually made me wonder, you know, he's recruited all these healthy young men to eat this food. What did Wiley eat? You know, these contaminants were all over the food supply. Was Wiley like a super picky eater? Yes, he actually was a super picky eater. And and you can kind of get a sense of this after he goes over to Good Housekeeping because he writes a a food safety column there in which he is preaching the virtues. For instance, he wouldn't eat eat products made with bleached flour. Um, And he actually tried to get bleached flour taken out of the food supply. Uh, He's a big believer in whole grains. He's a big believer in, you know, your local butcher where you know where you get the food. Um, When he, there's all these ridiculous cartoons about how neurotic he is about what's in the food supply. Um, But so he tends to go on the straight and narrow with food. And one of the questions people asked him is, uh, you know, did you try these? Did you sit down and dine with your poison squad volunteers and eat what they ate? And he totally didn't, right? You know, and he argued that he couldn't afford to get sick. He was running the experiments. But, um, but yeah, no, he was super careful and increasingly neurotic about food. And you also mentioned that a lot of these reports actually created a lot of conflict um, within the Department of Agriculture. And one of the biggest sources of conflict within the Department of Agriculture was hysterical to me because it was not strictly food. It was liquor. And it was because some of the controversy was because the various interests, the various people within the Department of Agriculture liked certain kinds of liquor and they were backing their own kind of whiskey. Can you talk a little bit about the whiskey wars, which is what I think they should have been called? I think that would have been a great name for it. It was really ridiculous in a lot of levels. And and I should say up front that it, it won't surprise you to know that Wiley was a straight bourbon kind of guy, right? He didn't believe in blended whiskeys. He, he actually once said to Congress that, you know, one form of whiskey is straight and the other form is crooked, right? So you can't say that he was without bias in the case of whiskey. But basically what was going on was that uh, – uh, again, in the rise of the Industrial Revolution, we learn how to synthesize ethanol, uh, which is, and ethanol is in fact the alcohol that we all drink if we drink every day with our cocktail or, or however often with our cocktails and our wine and our beer and and whiskeys. It's the basic alcohol of consumable liquors and wines and beers, and uh, it's made you know by fermenting 
everything from grain to grapes, but it turned out you could make this in a laboratory very cheaply, and you could make it by the vat, and then you could use this industrial alcohol to, or neutral spirits and dye it and flavor it and, and pretend that it was whatever you wanted it to be. You could pretend that it was whiskey. You could dye it with – people use burnt sugar often, and then they had flavorings, essence of rye, right? I love this, uh, flavor of bourbon and, and other additives to make it look like whiskey. And so what happened was during what you think of as the whiskey wars, the straight – whiskey producers, many of them in Kentucky, are absolutely outraged because there's these cheap whiskeys, cheap fake whiskeys flooding the market. And you see them both on their own as fake whiskeys, and you see them also in blends, which was Wiley's point. So there were blended whiskeys that were just blends of whiskeys, some very good age whiskeys and some, you know, newer, cheaper whiskeys. And there were blended whiskeys that were blends of, you know, both these fake whiskeys and good whiskeys and there were blended whiskeys that were just blends of fakes like it's, it's the same kind of wild west that you saw with food and so you see the maker of good blended whiskeys really trying to fight the fakes and you see the uh, people who make straight age Kentucky bourbon being very self-righteous about the fact that there's only the real drink. And those two groups, the blended whiskey makers who are really trying to get a foothold for credibility and the bourbon makers and rye makers, they're really at war with each other. And, And they put a lot of money into this and they really hate Wiley, the blended guys, because he's so clearly on one side. And so this ties the federal government into knots literally for years. You, how do you deal with this? What's real whiskey? What is whiskey at all, right? It, and you, so two different presidents are forced to wrestle with this. Roosevelt tries to decide it. Taft is forced to take it up again. You know, it's a dogfight over how we define whiskey. Um, and in the end, it's William Howard Taft actually over the objections of people like Wiley who set the standards for whiskey labeling today so that he basically said all alcohol is alcohol. doesn't matter if it's industrial alcohol or, you know, 30-year-old age bourbon. It is just alcohol. And so if you blend like substances, uh, then you can call, put anything you want to in a blended whiskey and you do not have to acknowledge that it's not a, actually a blend of aged whiskeys or whatever and those are the rules we have today and getting to that point whether you agree with it or not took a lot of politics and cost Wiley a lot of political capital. And this was not the only drink that ended up in your book. I was also really interested in Wiley's fight about Coca-Cola, and it was yes. not because Coca-Cola contained cocaine, because by that point, it did not. <laughs> right. It was actually over the caffeine in Coca-Cola. Why was he upset about this? 
I mean, isn't that just, I mean, there's so many, you've got to be kidding me, moments in this story. But Coca-Cola, in its original formula, of course, did contain cocaine. Um, and that was back in the late 19th century. And, and the company was forced, right about the turn of the 20th, to take cocaine out, uh, both by state law and consumer pressure in particular. And so, what Wiley had two gripes with, the, with Coca-Cola. One was that they were still trading on consumer perception. The consumers were not as worried about cocaine back then in general, and, and there were a lot of medicated soft drinks. So he felt that Coca-Cola was still implying to people that they could get a cocaine pick-me-up by putting pictures of coca leaves and stuff on their products, right? He wanted them to quit doing that and be honest. But more than that, when they did take cocaine out of their drink, they still wanted Coca-Cola to be a big pick-me-up. So they ratcheted up the amount of cocaine in, in their formula. I mean, cocaine. They ratcheted up the amount of caffeine in their formula by an enormous amount. And so I have read that the amount of uh, caffeine in a glass of Coca-Cola, right, it was sold often as a soda drink, was about the same as in a large can of Red Bull. There was a lot of caffeine in Coca-Cola. And it was marketed a lot to children, right? You go down to your local soda fountain and, you know, have a nice friendly soft drink. And so Wiley had very strong feelings about that. He didn't think that caffeine was entirely benign, and he really hated the way it was marketed to kids. And so he lobbied for quite some years to take the Coca-Cola company to court, and eventually he won. And so there's this crazy trial, and it really was crazy, in 1911 in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is uh, was actually the home of a big Coke bottling plant in a city super friendly to Coca-Cola, in which the government sues Coca-Cola on both those grounds. And they lose. They actually lost on a technicality, right? The uh, company went to uh, the local judge and he, they said, wait, we've changed our mind. We, You can't even sue us over caffeine because it's not really an additive. It's just natural. And the judge then dismissed the whole government case. Uh, what's interesting about the follow-up to that, though, well, there's two things that I like. One is Coca-Cola brought in some great scientists to defend caffeine. And, and actually, the best of the scientific testimony, the best of the scientific testimony was Coca-Cola science. And they were able to really lay down a foundation that we use today for the fact that caffeine is not an amazingly dangerous substance, but also has some really positive effects. I mean, the first good science showing that caffeine kind of jolts you in the morning, it sharpens your mental processes a little bit temporarily, it actually can improve your coordination. The first good science showing that came out of that trial. I found that really fascinating. But the other really interesting thing is even though the government is not fond of Wiley at this point and they don't like his highly purist attitudes, they did not give up on this Coca-Cola case. They actually thought he was right about caffeine. And so they continued to pursue legal action against Coca-Cola until about 1917 or so, a good you know, five years after Wiley has left government service, 
they reach a settlement with Coca-Cola in which Coca-Cola agrees to pay all the government costs and they agree to cut the amount of caffeine in their drink. And they did. They whacked it down by half. So this wasn't as lost a cause as you first thought and it did set down some of our sort of ground rules for regulating caffeine which eventually the supreme court said was legal and and for recognizing you know some of its pluses and minuses in human health and you mentioned that this was contentious and that the government was not happy with wiley and a lot of this book actually centers on the many, many times Wiley fought with his boss, yes. fought with other people in other departments. And I began to wonder, why did no one fire this man? Yes. You know, and their newspapers are actually on and off during his tenure with government. I mean, he was there for 30 years in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, just about. But on and off, you see these newspaper stories. He's going to be fired. He's going to be fired any minute. He's ticked off. You know, he's gone past the point of return. Even Roosevelt was furious with him. And Roosevelt actually, when he first came into office, did try to have him fired not over food safety, but because he challenged Roosevelt in, in front of Congress on some sugar tariff rules. And in that case, James Wilson, who was the Secretary of Agriculture for most of Wiley's uh, last years there, stood up for him and prevented him from being fired. But there you see a really interesting situation in which from that point on, from the point that Roosevelt is in office, particularly Wiley becomes increasingly um, uh, tough to deal with. He, he just feels like he's on the right totally on the right side. There's a cause. He's on the right side and people who disagree with him are on the wrong side. And, and he gets into Wilson's face in all kinds of ways, contributes to public embarrassments of Wilson, right? And it really infuriates him. You find the Secretary of Agriculture holding public meetings, trying to roll back some of the things that Wiley is pushing for. So yeah, why didn't he get fired? He had a lot of political clout at that point. And Roosevelt actually said that. And Taft said it too, that there were so many people at that period who saw Wiley as the avenging angel, essentially, of the American food supply, the person in government, the one person in government who had gone to the mat to protect American citizens, that firing him raised all kinds of possibilities of scandal and harm to anyone who tried. So, so Wilson instead tries to, and his, Wilson and I should say, and his minions decide instead to try to force Wiley to resign by drumming up a fake scandal about misuse of government money. And it was a fake. And they float this forward and all of the people who had said, don't do this uh, because it's going to cost you politically were absolutely right. The scandal becomes a huge flaming, you know, roar of indignation by people across the country who see the gov this example of this is an example of government corruption and Wiley triumphs in this scandal that arises. This is shortly after the Coca-Cola trial, 
continues into 1912. Taft finds him innocent, right? Everyone recognizes that the government has been exposed. It's really in bed with big business and the way that they regulate foods. You can, you know, a lot of the behind the scenes maneuverings to weaken the food law are exposed in this scandal. So in many ways, it works to Wiley's favor. But I think it also persuades him finally that his time useful time in government is done and he resigned you know not so many months after he was cleared now wiley was a a titan of this movement but we also can't talk about this period in history without talking about upton sinclair and his book the jungle i actually read this book pretty recently and sinclair meant the novel to be in support of immigrants and particularly in support of socialism but ended up making a ruckus about meatpacking. And as he said, I aimed for the public's heart and by accident, I hit it in the stomach. I was wondering if you could talk about Sinclair's book and what it depicted that made people so upset. Yes. So, I mean, I love the story of the jungle. It was like I had to read it when journalism school as an example of a, you know, a piece of reporting that made a difference. And and that's really the key of why it made a difference. It is a novel. Upton Sinclair was a dedicated socialist, partly because he was a very poor writer. He had a lot of plight for the underpaid, he had a lot of sympathy for the underpaid. And he first published that novel in a socialist newspaper, Appeal to Reason, which was based in Kansas, which was then a hotbed of socialism. Um, and so, but to do the book, what he did was he was also a muckraking journalist. He went to Chicago and actually just lived in the Chicago stockyards for several months. He stayed at a settlement house. He was so poor that he actually blended in very well with the underpaid meat packers and butchers. And he collected a whole lot of documentation about how horrible these were conditions were. So when he wrote his novel, it was a novel that was based on actual reporting, right? And when he delivered it to his popular book publisher Macmillan, they were so horrified by what he was reporting, they canceled the book. And so he had this incredible conundrum. It was read by, you know, the small community of American socialists, but it wasn't making any difference. So he literally trucked the book back to New York, took it in a briefcase, went from publisher to publisher, and he finally got this young uh, editor at Doubleday Page to say, okay, I'm going to take on this book because I think it could really make uh, a scandal. And I'm into this guy was very into scandals. So the book is finished. He turns it over to Doubleday Page. They don't believe it either. They have to send out their own investigators. Their investigators come back and say, yes, everything in the meatpacking industry is just as bad as he said. So talk about timing. You have Wiley and his poison squad crusades and scandals. And you have Upton Sinclair, whose book is finally published by Doubleday Page in 1906, but has real journalism behind it. And Doubleday Page actually publishes their investigations in a magazine. And they send the book to Teddy Roosevelt, who doesn't believe it. 
he sends out his investigators, right? So what made that book so powerful was not just Upton Sinclair's novel. I mean, it's a very theatrical, slightly preachy, incredibly, wonderfully detailed book, but it has all this power of the real behind it. It has the investigation he did, the investigation his publisher did, the investigation that Roosevelt did, and all of that creates both a national and international scandal. I mean, the meatpacking conditions were absolutely horrific. And so that allows Roosevelt to negotiate for the Meat Inspection Act of 1906, which is the first federal meat inspection act with some teeth. And the sort of tidal wave of the Meat Inspection Act finally pushes Wiley's crusade for a food and drug law over the finish line. And both of those laws passed in June of 1906. And that is such an exciting moment then, but also now, because that is the first time in U.S. history that the U.S. government plants its feet and, yes, says, yes, we are here to protect consumer. That is the first consumer protection legislation that passes on a national scale. And so it changes the landscape of who we are. And I was very struck reading this book, um, not The Jungle, your book, <laughs> um, about <laughs> how both modern and old-fashioned the worries Wiley dealt with seemed. Because, for example, we wouldn't worry about formaldehyde in our milk now. But That's we right. do worry a lot about pesticides and uh, corn syrup and GMOs. Is there a movement going on now that you think compares to the pure food movement? I think there is a lot of consumer concern about food safety. And, and, and there's organizations, both environmental and food-related, that, yes, indeed, have sort of coalesced around this issue and, and have lobbied for better consumer protections and have moved the needle forward in terms especially of public awareness of some of these things. I mean, you don't drive a conversation if you're only talking within your own community of advocacy. I think some of the things, the awareness of pesticide, the use of pesticides in foods and where they're risky, uh, the awareness of the fact that we genetically modify food, I'm less alarmed by that right than some of the people involved in that movement. There's a, a heightened sense of consumer awareness that have been driven by these groups. I think the real issue for us now is that that some of the ways that their work has moved things forward is being rolled back by the current administration. So, for instance, you know, the Trump administration has certainly proposed to move some of food regulation away from the modern FDA and back to the Department of Agriculture. And, and I've talked to people at the FDA about that, you know, uh, with the clean, with clean meat, for instance, lab grown meat. There's a huge push to move that back to USDA. That push is driven by the U.S. cattle industry, which I hear believes that they can then really undo the whole clean meat thing once it's in an agribusiness friendly kind of environment. So you're seeing that kind of action. The consumer protection groups were able to 
put their muscle behind the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was passed under Barack Obama, but it's not really funded at this point. So a lot of our problems are that we still have regulations and food safety standards that date back both to Wiley's time and to the 1938 Act that established the modern FDA. So a lot of our regulations are based on, um, you know, really vintage standards and regulations that should be updated, but we don't have certainly the political will or the political interest at this moment to happen. So I think we're coalescing to some extent about a, around a sense of alarm about that as much as anything. And we should be alarmed, right? These kinds of regulations are a thin layer of protection against what we used to have in the 19th century, and we need to fight to keep them. I noticed that, you know, in this book, we, when it started out in the 1880s, 1890s, you know, people had this kind of anti-regulation, we will drink formaldehyde in our milk if we want to, right. <laughs> kind of view. And as people began to, you know, die, their views kind of changed. Do you think people now have a different view about food regulation in general than they did then? Or do you think there's a, a similar view among the population of hands off my food, I will buy what I want? Right. I do think that we've changed somewhat the way we think about this in that, you know, there's a lot of expectation that if we are in a dangerous food event, the government is in fact going to muscle in and, and try to figure out what happened and, and actually take action if need be against the com these companies. So, you know, we have a kind of uh, complacency about that and acceptance of that that wasn't then. We have learned to accept that consumer protection should be part of what the government does. And so, for instance, I'm, if you looked at the Peanut Corporation of America case, you know, of maybe five or six years ago, I think it was, where you had a company that was making contaminated, toxin-contaminated peanut butter, uh, and people died. Uh, I think it would have been a scandal if the government hadn't investigated, and in fact, the president of that company went to prison, right? We expect that. We expect the government to stand up. Right. When we see these outbreaks of food poisoning related to, um, you know, bacteria growing in lettuce and things, we expect the government to do that. I think that landscape is fundamentally changed. Uh, what I think do, are we still use the term regulation as a bad word? Certainly you see it politically used as a very bad word and you see business working actively to make people of people think of regulations as something that stymie, you know, good economic health and uh, American economic power, right? So, you know, that kind of tension is still going on. And I think we suffer from regulatory memory failure. Not that you know, we were around in the 19th century, but one of the reasons I wanted to tell this story is that I think we don't have that history at hand. We don't actually realize how bad food was before even the most basic of regulations that came in with the 19th 
1906 Act. And I think of myself as a science-educated person, uh, and I didn't know. All of this was new territory to me. So I think it's really important to bring these histories forward so that we don't forget and we do remember that regulation is another name for consumer protection. It, you know, it's not a, uh, you know, deliberate holdback business move. It comes in because businesses didn't take these steps. And it would be naive of us to expect it, them to, you know, radically protect consumers if there wasn't some kind of apparatus in place. I'm picturing the rallying cry now. Remember the borax. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> we should we should get it on t-shirts. Well, Deborah, totally. thank you so much for talking with us. It's just been a pleasure. These were great questions and I enjoyed the conversation so much. If you'd like to learn more about Deborah Blum and her book, The Poison Squad, One Chemist's Single-Minded Crusade for Food Safety at the Turn of the 20th Century, we've linked to more information at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. There, you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can follow us around, you can listen to past episodes, you can subscribe to the show, you can leave a review telling us about your personal experiences with Borax. You can also find our Patreon page there, where you can support our intrepid podcasting crew with a monthly donation. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 